Please turn to Galatians chapter 5. I confess that I have come before you on various times as we have worked our way through Galatians and, and uh, mildly complained at, at the challenging nature of the text that is, has been before us, but I don't do that this evening. I am eager to preach um, Galatians 5 to you this evening. Um, a special thank you to Pastor Greco, who um, so ably handled the, the first part of this section in verses 16 through 21, speaking of the negative, um, the, the list of vices that Paul gives there. But now, in opposition to that, the Apostle Paul gives us the fruit of the Spirit, a list of the fruit of the Spirit. And this is the fruit that the Spirit works in the life of believers. It's not a fruit stand from which we pick and choose. Our favorite fruits are those that look the best to us and leave off those that we may not like. But it is a fruit basket of different graces, all of which that should accompany the life of the believer. These characteristics are the result of the work of the Spirit in the life of believers, uniting them to Christ, enabling them to be like Christ, and empowering them to show the love of Christ to others. At the end of this short text, we're called to keep in step with the Spirit and to pursue unity and the fellowship of other believers. So let us pray as we approach God's Word, and then we'll read our text together. Lord, we bow before you, thanking you for your Word, desiring to sit under the authority of it. We thank you that you have spoken in and through your Word, and you continue to speak to us here this evening. So, Lord, attend the, the reading and preaching of your word, Lord, not, not for me, but for the sake of your people and for your glory, Lord, we ask. And, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. We'll pick up and read from verse 16 through verse 26. But this I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. I want to speak to the young people, and there's not very many of you here, so... The, the two or three or four or five of you that are here, listen up. Prepositions are important. I was likely in maybe about seventh grade when it was drilled into my head by my, 
by my teacher at that time, Miss Ann Schreffler, who we called Miss Schreff, or sometimes behind her back we called her Sergeant Schreff because she was so tough. But she knew how to teach things. And she taught us that a preposition is anything that a rabbit can do to a brush pile. Any of you children ever heard that? And that's, that's the way I learned it. You know, a rabbit can go under it, it can go around it, it can go through it, it can go all of those things, okay? And um, so my outline has two prepositions in it. My two points are this, the fruit of the Spirit and the walk by the Spirit. Now, I forgot to mention one little pesky word that's an exception to my rule, and that's the word of, which is a preposition, and it means belonging to or the cause of something. So when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it is the Spirit's work. It is the fruit that the Spirit produces in the life of the believer. Now, fruit and fruitfulness, not to get too bogged down into a whole biblical theology of fruit, but it's interesting to think about fruit in the Old Testament. Where did God place Adam and Eve? He placed them in a garden full of fruit. And it was for their enjoyment. And there was all the nature of fruit around them for their enjoyment, with the exception of one tree, of course. And that, of course, is what they were tempted to eat, and by it they fell. And God, but, but this idea of a fruitful vineyard is, and, uh, is carried forward throughout the Old Testament. When God expressed his displeasure with idolatrous Israel, he called them a fruitless vineyard. They were guilty of producing wild grapes of violence and wickedness. And, and you see that in the prophet Isaiah. But also in the prophet Isaiah, we see that that there's a promise of a faithful servant who would be fruitful. We see in verse 1 of chapter 11 where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesus, of course, was that faithful and fruitful servant. And he was fruitful because he accomplished the work that he came to do. He came, as we've already seen in in Galatians, he came and suffered the curse that we deserved. He died the death that we should have died. He rose and ascended to the Father. And following his ascension, the Holy Spirit was poured out in its fullness on believers. And the fruit of the Spirit that we are considering tonight here is because of the work of Christ on our behalf and the sending of the Spirit unto us. And that's why Paul, in another epistle, calls Jesus the life-giving Spirit. So we must remember that the fruit of the Spirit is that which flows from the Spirit as He works in the lives and hearts of believers. And of course, this, is, this list of characteristics that we'll consider this evening is not something that we work up on our, on our own. It's not something we, we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we, and we try to, to work this out ourselves. It is the work of the Spirit in us. In theological terms, this is an indicative, not an imperative. He is giving an indication of what the life in Christ is like. And the fruit is not a product of our works that Paul has warned us about in, the Galatian, in Galatians. He warned the Galatians against them. The fruit comes from a tree whose roots are down deep in gospel soil. So we, we know that, that the fruit is the work of the Spirit. It is a result of Christ living in us. We saw in Galatians 2.20, 
Paul's words there, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we look at these, we need to look to Christ. We need to look at Christ who is the ultimate one who bears fruit. And we bear fruit by the work of the Spirit in our lives. So I want us to look at each of these briefly and categorize them, um, which may be helpful. And, and um, I've, ta- I've, I've labeled, I broke them down into groups of three. There's nine of them. I broke them down into groups of three. The first three we'll call heart graces. The next three, patience, kindness, and goodness, we'll call graces shown to others. And the final three, graces that anchor us. Now, obviously, there's a lot of overlap. All of them flow from the heart. All of them flow flow from the life of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in us. And all of them affect our relationship with others. But hopefully that will help us as, as we break this down. First of all, love. Love is of first importance. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. When Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments, what was the overarching theme? It was love. Uncompromised love for God and unselfish love for neighbor. Love is the chief of graces. Faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. That's how Paul concludes his great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13. He tells us there that love is not arrogant. It is not proud. It is not puffed up. It does not boast. It seeks the, others, the good of others. Basically, love is not about getting, but it is about giving. When I uh, counsel, uh, when I give premarital counseling, I point couples to 1 Corinthians 13. And I, tr- I give them homework that, that takes each of those phrases from, from Paul's epistle there and, and helps, and I, and I try to help them understand what it means to truly love. And then I ask them to rate themselves and how well they think they love their fiancé biblically. And what I'm trying to do there is trying to kind of break them out of the world's mold that tells us that love is about getting, that love is about me. Because too often the things that, that, that we think are love are really the things that make us feel good. So Paul starts this list of the fruit of the Spirit with love. And it's, it's interesting that as we read here and as Pastor Greco pointed out, the first in the list of vices was sexual immorality. All sexual sin is unloving. It is self-focused. But here, Paul starts with love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, which is selfless and giving. It puts others first. One has defined love as a concrete action on another's behalf, even in the face of hostility and hatred. And that's exactly what Jesus showed for us. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, verse 13. God is love. And that's where Paul starts his list. Next, we have joy. Now, joy and happiness are not the same thing. I hope that doesn't come as news to you, but they're not the same. 
Joy is not the opposite of suffering. In fact, the author of Hebrews links the two of those concepts, joy and suffering, together when he writes of our Lord Jesus in chapter 12, verse 2. And he says there, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy is the deep feelings of goodness and steadfastness that result from God's love for us and our love for Him. His promises to us and our faith in those promises. Another author has said, it is the echo of our hearts, joy is the echo of our hearts of experiencing Christ as precious and experiencing Christ as reliable. It's the deep good feeling of being attracted to Him for who He is and the deep feelings of being confident in knowing that He will do what He says He will do. When you define joy that way, you can have joy in your suffering, in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your grief, in the middle of your loss, because of your confidence in Christ, not because of your circumstances, but because of what you know about your Lord. And what you know that he will do. That he is a faithful, covenant-keeping, promise-keeping Lord. Philippians 4, 4 and 5 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. He is at hand. We can rejoice and be joyful knowing that he is with us. Next on the list is peace. Peace and joy are closely related in Scripture. We see that in Philippians 4, Romans 14 and 15. We could, we could go to these texts, but we'll, we'll press on. Peace, we could say, is the absence of turmoil. It's a state of quiet or tranquility. Personal peace in the believer's life flows from the peace that they have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All the peace that we have as believers, is based upon the fact that we have been reconciled to God because we were God's enemies, because we were sinful. We were in sin, and we have been reconciled to God, and there has been peace made through Jesus Christ. So that's the basis of our peace. Christ has brought us peace and reconciliation, and that peace should spill over into all of our life. It should affect our relationships it should allow us to live in peace with others. Romans 12, 18 reminds us, if, it is po if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This peace should affect how we view the future. Jesus in Matthew 6 deals with the, the issue of anxiety. I heard this week how anxiety is, is affecting young people and, and, and children as young as eight are suffering from anxiety. And, and I think that's true. I think that there is, there is evidence of it. But, but Jesus reminds us. He says, look at the birds of the air. I provide for them. He says, look at the, the fields of, of beautiful flowers and grass. As I was driving to and from the men's retreat, I was, I was treated to the beautiful scenery of, of the wildflowers along the road. Evidence of God's care. Evidence of God's goodness. Evidence of His provision. And these things remind us that he will provide for us the things that, he, that we need. We can be at peace with others 
and with the future because Christ has made peace for us and will provide our need. So as we have rapidly gone through these first of the three graces, love, joy, and peace, let me ask you, how is that fruit growing in your life? We press on, graces shown to others, patience, kindness, and goodness. Patience, offer more patience. Be careful, we're told, don't pray for patience, then God will give you trials. Well, guess what? Trials come whether you pray for patience or not. They are God's way of sanctifying us. They are, they are God's work in us. Patience is the ability to bear up under trials. It's endurance in adversity without murmuring or fretting. Job, of course, is a model of patience. He waited upon God for relief from his trials. He, he remained steadfast and blameless even as his so-called friends questioned his integrity. And Christ is the ultimate model of patience. He endured the ignorance of disciples, the the crowds that were constantly pressing upon him, the religious leaders who tried to trap him in his words, and finally he endured the cross, as Hebrews 12 tells us. It is his patience, it is Christ's patience that is worked in us by the Spirit to produce this fruit. The next two we'll, we'll take together for sake of time, kindness and goodness are closely related. Kindness is a caring willingness and readiness to help. Goodness is a willingness to be generous, the dictionary tells us. Paul links these two terms in Titus 3, 4 when he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So we see the two linked there. And we should be eager to reflect the goodness and kindness that we have been shown the generosity that we have been shown in Christ and be those who delight in contributing to the happiness of others. Being, we should be willing to cheerfully grant to others their wishes, seeking to supply their wants and alleviate their distresses, dictionary, the dictionary tells us. And really that should be the mark of believers. They're kind, they're generous, they're giving, they, they think of others. Moving quickly on to the next set, the graces that anchor us. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness is certainly an attribute of God that should be reflected in us, although in a lesser and greatly imperfect way, and that's certainly true in, in my life, as Harry Reader said on, on more than one occasion, speaking of various things that the Christian should pursue, I'm He's, he's between zero and, somewhere between zero and 100 in his, his ranking of those things. But we serve a faithful and covenant-keeping God. The Apostle Paul spoke of Christ and said, For all the promises of God in him yea, are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises. And because God is faithful... One fruitful grace wrought in us by the Spirit of God is faithfulness. Next, we see gentleness. It is to not be harsh or rude or violent. Gentleness is defined as mildness of temper, sweetness of disposition, meekness. Moses is described as a meek man. Jesus 
was described as gentle and lowly. But meekness is not weakness. Jesus was zealous for his father's house. He upended the, the tables of the money changers because he said, my, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. And they had made it into a place of commerce and they were taking advantage of, of those that, that needed to buy the, the things for the sacrifices. Jesus, of course, boldly faced opposition, even his death, speaking truth to those who had the authority to put him to death and eventually did put him upon the cross. Jesus calls us to himself with these words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If we want our personal character to be Christ-like, we will seek gentleness that he showed. And it's by the work of the Spirit that that is wrought in us. Would others describe you as a gentle person? Finally, self-control, the end of our list. Self-control means controlling yourself. Well, I put duh in parentheses in my notes because that's really what it says. But it's akin to temperance or moderation. Another way to say this might be self-discipline. It's doing what you need to do instead of what you want to do. My dad always told me the goal of all discipline is self-discipline. And a self-controlled person considers the dangers in certain activities or behavior and either refrains from them completely or does them in a careful and lawful way. And when I say lawful, I mean according to God's word. Lawful in the terms of, of God's law. This person that is self-controlled is not ruled by their desires, but rather seeks to enjoy the gifts of God in a way that God intended, intended for them to be enjoyed. This virtue is much needed in the area of our sexuality and in the areas of, of food and drink. But increasingly, self-control is needed in the words that we speak and write. So let me ask you, are the words that you write online edifying? Do they show kindness and gentleness to others? Are you exercising self-control in the amount that you drink? Are the images that you see online wholesome and pure? Is this fruit seen in you? It is a spirit-wrought attribute in us. Now, this list is not intended to be exhaustive. We, it doesn't talk about hope. It doesn't talk about prayerfulness or godliness. But this list represents a lifestyle of the believer, not separate fruits. Perhaps we could see it as facets of a precious stone, of a diamond, if you will, different facets that show the beauty of the Spirit's work in the Christian life, all of them pointing ultimately to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us in, in an interesting phrase, he says in verse 23b, that there's no law against such things. Well, I guess not. He, he's dealt extensively with the law in, this, in the book of Galatians and, and has, has absolutely proven that the law does not save. It cannot produce righteousness. It's only the work of the Spirit that can produce the righteousness described and shown here. And it's never our righteousness. It's someone else's. It's an alien righteousness, we say. It's from somewhere else that's been given to us. Of course we know it's Christ's righteousness imputed to us. And it's by the work of God's Spirit in us 
that we can show these fruit, this fruit of the Spirit. And that brings us to our second point, and more briefly, the walk by the Spirit. Now, there's two components of sanctification and, and two kind of big theological words I'm sure many of you are familiar with, mortification and vivification. And, and theologians like those terms, and, and I like them because I think they're biblical, um, even if you don't see them, uh, especially in the ESV, they're, they're kind of ancient words, but they're really two sides of the coin of sanctification. To, to mortify something is to kill it. If a man receives a mortal wound, he does not survive, he dies. And we see this concept of mortification in verse 24, where Paul says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Remember in the context of this whole thing, he gives these works of the flesh, all these lists of vices that we are to avoid, that we are to, to flee from. But he says here that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So he's saying... In our justification, there is a break from the world, from the world and sin. And, and Paul has developed this beautifully in another place in Romans 6. And I, I commend the reading and, and the study and the, even the memorization of that chapter to you. He says in, in one of those verses, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? He says elsewhere, sin no longer has dominion over you. So he's saying, we belong to Christ, we are his, and because of Christ's death, we died with Jesus, and our sins have been crucified there, as he says in verse 24. So Christ's death dealt a mortal wound to the devil and to sin, and because we belong to Christ, his death is the death to our sin. So there's a definitive break with sin in our justification when we come to Christ, but there's also a duty, a responsibility that we have to mortify sin. It's an ongoing process as well. Paul says in Romans 8, 13, For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. So this mortification of sin, this killing of sin that Kurt prayed about, it's an ongoing thing. Our pastor back in Kansas often said, referring to uh, a little different concept, but similarly, uh, in Romans 12, 1, where we are called to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, he says the problem with a, a living sacrifice is it keeps getting down from the altar. Well, I think similarly, we could say that, that this work of mortification is an ongoing thing because our sin likes to climb down from the cross. And so we have to remain, remain alert to that sin, and it's an ongoing process. In uh, Philip Ryken's commentary, he helpfully points out four things about crucifixion that help us understand this work of mortification. He says, first of all, that crucifixion is a shameful way to die. And we have, we have talked about that in, in previous sermons in Galatians. Crucifixion was shameful, it was, it was condemned, and, and only those, the worst sort of criminals, were condemned to die on a tree. For Romans, it was the ultimate cruelty. And it's only fitting that sin, which is against our holy and loving God, should be put to death by crucifixion. 
Secondly, he says that crucifixion is a painful way to die. Much has been written about the extreme pain and agony experienced by one on a cross. And sin does not die without protest. Too often, though, sin can be dear to us. And while we may go through the, 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 the motions of mortification, we may be secretly hoping that our sin survives the mortification process. So what about you? Are you trying to fully and finally put sin to death? Next, we, say, we see that crucifixion is a gradual way to die. The victims of crucifixion could live for days upon a cross. It was designed to make men suffer for a long period of time before they die. John Brown said in his commentary on Galatians, he said, crucifixion was a punishment appropriated to the worst crimes of the basest sort of criminals and produced death, not suddenly but gradually. And in a similar way, he goes on, true Christians do not succeed in completely destroying the flesh while here below, but they have fixed it to the cross and they are determined to keep it there until it expire. Sin does not die easily or quickly. Now, some sins may be taken away in a moment. Harry Reader, I'm going to step aside here if I can get out of the sun. Harry Reader spoke about um, how some sins that, that he faced as a young man were instantly taken away, and others he battled all through his life. And that is, that is commonly true, and we are called to continue that battle. John Owen said, He that is appointed to kill an enemy... If he leave or stop striking before the other ceases living, doth but half his work. In other words, don't do a halfway job in mortifying your sin. Keep after it. Finally, crucifixion is a final way to die. Prisoners were not crucified just to make them suffer, but it was to make them suffer and then eventually die. If they did not expire from the loss of blood, they more commonly died from asphyxiation. And if, if it came to that, then their legs were broken to finish them off. So they could not press down on their legs and attempt to breathe, and then they would, they, would, they would suffocate. So we must battle sin to the death. I thought of this illustration of, from, from my youth. I, I would um, occasionally, not very much, but I, I, I tried my hand at, at trapping animals. And, and I, I was always trying to get raccoons, because that was something you could trap in Kansas um, and you could sell their fur. Um, but I, I had the unfortunate privilege of, of trapping a possum. And um, I don't know if you've ever tried to kill a possum. Possums die very slowly. And they are hard to kill. One morning I went out before school and in the, in the pre-dawn hours, barely being able to see, I saw this possum and he was at the end of the chain on the trap and hissing at me. And I I shot him a couple times, I clubbed him over the head, and, you know, through the blood and, and broken skull, probably, he was still hissing and acting like he wanted to chew my leg off. And I thought of that, you know, we have to be persistent. We have to keep killing sin. We have to club it to death. We can't let up until the work is done. We have to go after it till it's finally dead. We have to continue after it. As Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And while we can and should and will grow in our victory over sin, we are not done with this fight until we reach glory. The other term I mentioned and briefly here is that of vivification. Vivify is to make alive, to enliven or animate. 
It's the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. But it is us working out what God is working in us. We are seeking to mortify the flesh, and we should also be seeking to see the life of the Spirit enlivened and enlarged within us. And we can't do one without doing the other. They go hand in hand. How are we to see the work of the Spirit in us? Well, God works through His Word, through the sacraments and prayer. We see in the earliest days of the New Testament church, there we find the believers continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and, the breaking, and in the breaking of bread and of prayers. We see in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, this, this concept that, that, that might initially see, seem like against each other, but really these things are working together where, where Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so you work it out. But then he says what? It is God that works within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are called to work out what he has and is working within us. We are called to be doers of the word and not hearers only, as James says. So we grow by learning, by doing, by reading and obeying. And, and part of the walking in the spirit or keeping in step with the spirit is also living a life of repentance. While the law is completely powerless to save us, it does serve as a mirror to show us our sin. And where we see sin, we should confess it. That's really part of that work of mortification, is confessing of sin. In repentance, we say that God is right and just and holy, and that we are wrong and sinful. In repentance, we seek to trace our sin into the recesses and corners of our life, we seek to see how the roots of it have permeated us in sinful thinking and in our wrong desires that, that leads to sinful fruits of sinful actions. And we call sin, sin. We name it according to God's word. And we invite God to penetrate the dark corners of our heart where if we're honest, we know that his eyes already see. And we invite him to root out our sin. It's characteristic of sin to excuse itself, but the characteristic of true repentance is to judge oneself with the truth of God, with the veracity of God. This is living by the Spirit. Finally, at the end, he tells us to keep in step with the Spirit. This language makes us think of, of military life and a group of soldiers marching in cadence. They're not seeking their own path. They're, they're following their leader. They're following their drill instructor. They're just doing what they're told. They're not necessarily even told where they're going. They are keep, merely keeping cadence. They are marching in formation. And if our eyes are upon our Savior, upon our leader, if we're keeping in step with the Spirit, then we should not fall into those sins described in that final verse where he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We need to be more concerned about what our commanding officer is saying and less concerned about what people around us say and think. Arrogance, strife, and envy have no place in the life of the believer. They are sins that we need to nail to the cross. So keep your eyes on your leader. Mortify the flesh. Keep in step with the Spirit. And by these things we will grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. This evening, if you've heard this message, if you've considered the work of the Spirit in the life of believers, if maybe you're a believer and you say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm blowing it. I'm, I'm not faithful. I'm not loving. I'm not, uh, there's no peace. There's no joy. Go to Christ. He is the source of all of these things. I've tried to say that, and, and, and maybe I've said it too much. I've said it again and again. Christ is the source. It is by the Spirit that these things are worked out. It's, you don't need to work these things up on your own. You go to Christ. You look to Him. But maybe you're outside of Christ, and maybe you don't know the Lord that is the source of all of these things. And if that's the case, I invite you to come to Christ confess your sins, trust in Him completely, receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He has offered to us in the gospel.